Uh, our scripture reader today uh, is David Wright. He's going to be reading uh, Romans 12, 9 and 10, and Romans 13, uh, 8 through 10. Uh, in honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Owe no man anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so we are finishing a series in Romans 8 today. Um, and this is the, the, final, uh, the final part of that. Um, over the course of this time, we've recognized that uh, this book, 16 chapters, uh, this, this letter in, in the New Testament is a, um, a pretty significant work. And it includes uh, so many things that help us uh, understand, understand the gospel. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a, a pastor in England, and he um, spent a lot of time in the book of Romans. And his uh, commentary set has a whole bunch of volumes, uh, way more volumes than you might assume could be written on 16 chapters. Um, and, and he referred to Romans chapter 8 as, as the, the, the brightest of those gems. So he thought of Romans as just a collection of gems and looked at chapter 8 and thought of it as the brightest of the gems. Um, there's an author named Derek Thomas who said that Romans 8 shows us how the gospel brings us all the way home. And uh, over the course of these uh, eight Sundays that we've been in, in Romans chapter 8, uh, I hope that, that, has, uh, that you've tasted some of that. You've seen why uh, a, a scholar of the Bible would call Romans 8 the brightest gem. Why Derek Thomas would uh, uh, offer the thought that it brings us all the way home. It is, it is packed full of good news, yeah, even when life is uh, not the way that you want it to be, even when you're going through really hard things. And, um, and I, I know I've mentioned it, and it's already been mentioned a couple times, but um, you know, I, I, I don't know how many times I've stood up here and you know, uh, implored you as a church family to endure through hard things. And um, you know, we're, we're there right now. And in some ways, I think for Ben and myself both, uh, it's like today is a day of like, I mean, worshiping God is, is incredible, and gathering with the church family is incredible, but we also get, get paychecks for this. And in some ways, like today is an exercise in doing our jobs and, uh, and, and being here to, uh, to, to exalt Jesus and to, and to do it with our church family. But it is, um, we are swimming against the current. So appreciate your patience as we um, try to navigate good, really good content that's important for us. So where we've been so far is um, through the book of Romans, um, we've summarized it this way, and I'm gonna, it's going to stop crying in a second. Um, we, we have summarized it this way, that um, if you were to try to say, what, what, is, what is Paul, what is the argument that Paul is making for us as we live in this world right now? The first eight chapters, you, you, you could summarize them like this. Everyone needs to be made right. In, in Romans chapter 1, 
Paul uh, it, it addresses this reality that sin has infected the world and it's gotten deep into our hearts. And we live in a sense of rebellion. We, we, we live in this way where we run against uh, God's good way. Uh, as you come to chapter 2, you might say, okay, well, we run against God's good way. Maybe I'll just try to run with God's way. Maybe I'll try to obey. Maybe I'll just try to do good things. And in Romans chapter 2, you realize that, you know, in chapter 1, it tells us everybody needs to be made right. Chapter 2 reveals no matter how hard you try, no one can make themselves right. So this, is a, this, this problem of sin that has infected the human heart is bigger than any of us can fix. As you come into Romans chapter 3, you begin to realize that, that, that what Paul is telling us is that only Jesus Christ can make you right. And so this problem that's way bigger than our solution, uh, Christ it is the solution. Christ can do it. Christ can make you right. And this concept of rightness has this moral sense, yes, but it has this relational sense. And it's this recognition that we could actually be made right with God, and Christ can do that. As you get into chapter 4, the argument continues to unfold, and we realize that it's only faith in Christ that will make you right. So Christ can do it, but how do you get in on it? Well, Paul says it's through faith alone that you get in on that. So you come into chapter 5, uh, Paul tells us that anyone can be made right, uh, that this, this gospel news is not for one ethnic people or for one, uh, you know, one group that heard it first or anything like that. It's a wide open invitation to anyone who would respond in faith. And then you come to chapter 6 through 8 and, you, uh, and Paul is revealing to us that everyone who is made right is changed. And they're changed in really significant ways. And again, some summary statements that we could make here. You're changed to walk in newness of life. You see that in chapter 6. In chapter 7, you see all of this internal conflict that what you want to do is, is what you end up not doing. And what you don't want to do is what you end up doing. Uh, but Paul gives these little indications throughout that chapter that while that internal conflict, conflict is very real, that's a very real experience of our life on this earth as the people of God, he says that if you've run to God in Christ, the real you is the you that wants to follow God. The real you is the one that does want to do the right thing, that does want to honor the God of heaven. And brothers and sisters, that, that is really good news. As we come to chapter 8, we find out right off the bat, eight, chapter, chapter 8 verse 1, that we are completely forgiven. And in the verses right after that, that we are spiritually awakened. So, so Paul starts off Romans chapter 8 and he says to us that sin is taken... Sin is removed, there's no more condemnation, and life is given. That you're actually, your dead heart comes to life. Something is added. So your sin is taken away, and, and the life of God is, is, is added to your, your life. Uh, we find out that we are loved children of God. We are heirs with Christ, part of a, a global family. So that what, what's inherent here is this sense of a, we, we are adopted into a family, and it's not just any old family. We have a loving father. We have the father that we've always longed for. Whether you have a phenomenal relationship with your dad, or you have a terrible relationship with your earthly dad, or you have a terrible relationship with your earthly dad, either way, as you come into this reality of what it is to be in the family of God, you are invited into this reality that you have the perfect Father, the heavenly Father, the one that your soul has longed for. You realize you have a perfect older brother. That you, re you recognize this, this work of Christ on your behalf. Uh, the Bible is often referring to that we are heirs with Christ, that, that we've been brought into this family. Jesus is often referred to as the Son of God. And so we have this perfect older brother who, who came to get us, who at great cost to himself came to get us. 
And then we have tons and tons of siblings. Uh, siblings who uh, offend us sometimes and, and hurt us sometimes and love us sometimes and know us sometimes. This, this incredible family. And some of them we're in proximity with, like in this room right here. Uh, some of them have already lived and died. Uh, some of them have yet to be born. Some of them live uh, across the world. Uh, but it is this incredible spiritual global family uh, that this good news of the gospel brings us into. And then in the, in the, the second half of the chapter there, in the middle part of the chapter, we are, we, we, it was revealed that we're given incredible resources. Uh, Paul points to hope. And he says, how do, you, how do you deal with your sufferings? Well, look, do you know where this story's going? You know where it's headed? There's this, this, this invitation to actually sink ourselves, sink our roots into the story and to fight to believe that it's true, even when it doesn't feel like it's true. And, and, and Paul says this, this, this resource of hope is meant as a, as a tool for you, for us, to figure out how to navigate our sufferings. And then he points to the Holy Spirit. And he says, you're going through all this stuff and you're, you're going to pray. You should be praying. We should be people of prayer. But when we pray, even when we pray, we don't know what we're doing. We don't even know what we're saying. Half of the stuff we pray for, are, they're, they're, not, they're not helpful prayer requests. And, and, and Paul tells us the Holy Spirit is somehow taking our prayers and translating our prayers. And so in the middle of our hurts and in the middle of our sufferings and in the middle of our everyday life, the Spirit is actually translating our prayers. He's doing something with them uh, as he brings them to the Father. And the Father and the Spirit are one. And so there's this, there's this work of God in our lives that sometimes we're not voting for. And yet God is at work in a way to, to, to mold us into the image of his Son, Jesus. And then the last, uh, last week and this week, we're looking at the, the last verses of the chapter that, that reveal that one of these changes is this recognition or this, this experience of being eternally loved uh, by God. And so just as a, to rehearse these, these truths of Romans 8, 31 through 39, uh, I want to rehearse them and I want to think about them, if you would, just maybe, maybe think about them in the category of vertical love. And what, you know, we just, we just sang, uh, we're sitting here uh, opening up the Bible and learning together. And sometimes we think about this as, as vertical. We think of this as us, us worshiping God. And that's, that's an appropriate way to think. Um, but I want you to think of Romans 8, 31 through 39 and experience it as vertical love. And, and the, the direction is downward. That this is God pouring his love out on us. And I want you to see this radical, abundant love of God in Christ. And so last Sunday, we, we put these in kind of three groupings of questions. And uh, if you're in Romans 8 there, you'll see that, that what shall we say to these things in verse 31? Um, and so he goes through this. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we said last week that that is not the question um, if there's anyone against us. The, you know, the answer for sure is that there's people against us. The answer is for sure there are things that are against us. But none of them can be, they can't stand. For Christian, for the Christian, listen, nothing can knock you out of your fundamental standing with God. It's not if there's something standing against you. Of course there is. It's that, that what's standing against you cannot win. There, there's not a chance for that if God is for you. Next was, uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? You see this in verses 33 and 34. Uh, and, and, and the takeaway here is there are literally no charges left. 
that God knows everything about you. He knows all of the charges that could be made against you, not just in your past. He knows the present. He knows the future. He knows every charge that could be made against you. And Jesus has already been condemned for those. When Jesus went to the cross, the Bible tells us that he took the sin of the world upon himself. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. You think there's been some sin committed since Jesus was on the cross? You, you bet. Today. It's being added to. Like th this reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross is unspeakable. What he took upon himself on the cross. And because Jesus has already been condemned for all of that sin, there's no condemnation left for those who are in Christ. Literally every charge has been taken. There are no charges left. Anyone who would stand and condemn you, they, there, there's, no, there's no traction there's no traction. It's not that the condemnation, the accusation couldn't necessarily be true. It's that it's been paid for. It's that Christ has stood in your place, that your resume has been swapped with Christ's resume. And then in verses 35 through 39, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And uh, kind of the way we, we summarized that was nothing I do and nothing done to me, not, none of those things can separate me from the love of God. And that is such good news. Nothing I do can separate me from the love of God. And nothing done to me can separate me from the love of God. And Paul gets pretty creative in his lists. But no matter what he puts down there, whether they're things that you can relate to right now or things that you can't relate to, his point is to give you a general category that you can't do anything to separate you from God. And nothing done to you can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And just an illustration that... Um, that, that uh, might, might be helpful here is uh, we talked about this before, but in, in, in the Bible, there, you know, we, I, uh, Ben and I actually had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land a few years ago and spend time in Israel and in Palestine. And uh, someone asked me the question of like, is there a place that you didn't get to see that you really wanted to see? And my answer was, yeah, D Dothan. Uh, it's this little, little place that shows up a couple times in the Bible, and they think they know where it's at, but we, we, didn't, we didn't get a chance to, to go there. But the reason why I, I wanted to go there is because it, it shows up two different times, and it, it's, it's, it's helpful in this recognition of uh, the separation of you know, what, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Um, the first time that Dothan shows up in the Bible is in Genesis 37, and it's the, it's the situation where Joseph is uh, thrown into the pit by his brothers and he's sold to, um, to these, uh, he ends up in Egypt, but he's sold into slavery. And he is completely uh, blindsided by it. He's mistreated by his brothers and he is in that pit. And you got to imagine in that pit, he is crying out to God. So and this happens in Dothan. So, so Joseph is there in Dothan. He's being wronged. He's crying out to God. And you know what God does? God does absolutely nothing. God lets his brothers do that. God lets his brothers go back and lie to his dad and tell his dad that he was eaten by an animal. God lets Joseph end up in prison, in slavery. God, God lets all of that, God, he lets all of that happen. Another time that Dothan shows up in the Bible is in 2 Kings chapter 6. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, it's the prophet we know as, as Elisha. And Elisha is in Dothan, and he's on the run, and he's got his, his servant with him, and they're in a tent, and they're in a bad way, and they end up getting surrounded by the, the, the people that want to kill them. The army is surrounding Elisha's tent. He is surrounded, and he is in massive trouble. This is in Dothan as well. 
And so he's stuck in his tent. The army is surrounding his tent. And he's seen, you know, the, the, the situation seems hopeless. And his servant thinks it's over. The, you know, Elisha's servant thinks that, you know, we, we might as well just give up. Like, this is over. And Elisha prays, sitting there in Dothan. And he prays to the God of heaven. And you know what happens? When they walk outside the tent, there is an army of, of, of warrior angels with fiery swords. And they're surrounding the army that's surrounding Elisha. And it's this incredible work of God to show his power and to say to his servant, you're not alone. And he takes care of it in the, on that spot in Dothan. And you look and you say, how come with the first one in Dothan, God didn't do anything? And then in the second one, he acts like that. Have you ever been there? You know, the, but what, what's the end of the story with Joseph? The end of the story with Joseph is that God brought Joseph to Egypt so that Joseph would end up in a position to actually save God's people and keep the covenant people alive and keep God's promise intact. And so when you look at the little, this little no place, you know, the Dothan, no, no one, I mean, they're not even sure they know where it is. And yet in this place, we have this perfect picture of the way in which God loves and stays and cares for his people. Sometimes it leaves us scratching our head. Sometimes we pray and it seems like nothing happens. And other times we pray and, an, and, and you know, an army of angels shows up. And it's this beautiful affirmation that God is at work in the world sometimes in ways that we can see so, so clearly. And then sometimes in ways that leave us uh, with, with uh, a ton of questions. But Paul says, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Nothing can do it. You might, not, you might not understand some of it, but nothing can separate you. In Christ, if you are in Christ, you are fully known and you are fully loved. And we said last week, everybody wants to be known and everybody wants to be loved. But we are so scared that if you really know me, that you won't love me anymore. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, God knows every single thing about you and yet he loves you like this. He loves you so much, so deeply, that nothing can stop it. And there's this beautiful promise that he's going to carry you all the way home. Uh, a few verses before this text, right in, in, in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, there's this promised trajectory that he's going to glorify his people, that we're going to be transformed into what God always knew we could be, what he always wanted us to be. There's this guarantee, this promise that the love of God that will never stop is actually going to transform us into the image of Jesus. And in that way, the gospel brings us all the way home. Gospel news, this good news of the gospel. You know, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the angels can't get enough of it. They, they just, they want to gaze upon this good news of the gospel. They want to see it. They want to keep seeing it. And if, if all of these things in Romans 8 are true, can you see Why? The angels might want to gaze at this their whole life. Why, why it's, it seems like it's just, it's too deep to even grasp it. We've used this illustration so many times, but the gospel is like a swimming pool where on the one end, it's so shallow that anyone can get in it. And on the other end, it's so deep that no one can touch the bottom. So that these angels, uh, the angels of heaven, look at the gospel and they say, we've seen it for thousands of years and we want to see more. We want to gaze at it more. And Christian, that should be our posture towards the gospel as well. But you and I are alive in a real time, in a real place. Are we to do anything now? 
These are all glorious truths, and they are, they, they, they say incredible things about who we are. But are we to do anything right now? And you know, that, that is such a good question. And, and honestly, Paul, Paul sees you coming. And, and what, what, what the nature of this book, this book of Romans, the nature of this book is, is he is working towards the, the application of the things that he's writing. So, so Paul is basically saying that all of this amazing work of God towards us that we read about in Romans 1 through 8, actually Romans 1 through 11, then translates into our work towards others. So this incredible vertical love that God pours out on us, Paul says, you know where this goes? It pours down on you like Niagara Falls, like this incredible, uh, this, this powerful source upon you. And, and God's design is that then it, it flows horizontally. That, you, that, that all of this glorious truth, all of this love that we receive from the Heavenly Father is translated and it becomes horizontally expressed. And, it, and that love is to be radical and abundant. So much so that when you look at uh, Paul in, in chapter 12, verse 1, which is really where the turn is, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I urge you, and some translations put it this way, I urge you, in light of God's mercy, present your bodies like this. You, you see what he's doing? I urge you, in light of God's mercy, in light of this incredible vertical love that's pouring out on you, these incredible gospel truths that you get to digest and that you get to gaze upon, in light of that, present your bodies like this. In light of that, live like this. You see, the, Ro the truth of Romans 1 through 11 leads to the action of Romans 12 through 16. And so read, read Romans 12 through 16 sometime. We've just spent all these weeks in Romans chapter 8. Well, where do they go? Romans 12 through 16 is, is a big part of that answer. Maybe you've heard before that the indicatives, what, what it is true, are followed by imperatives, what you should do. And so this is true, now go do this. And we want the order right. We want the truth, what is true. We want that first, what has God done? What does God say about us? That's first. But boy, that leads to imperatives, to, to commands to action, to doing. Paul sees these things as intrinsic, that these two things are deeply connected, that this, this reality of, of what is true of the gospel, our faith, our beliefs, that they, lead, that they lead to action. And you know, over the course of the last 2,000 years, there's been all of this confusion about whether or not Paul, who wrote a lot of books in the New Testament, and James, who wrote one book in the New Testament, whether or not they get along. Because Paul says salvation is by faith alone, uh, and then James says faith without works is dead. But if you were to just sit and read the entire book of Romans, I don't think you need to sit and wrestle with that question as much. I think Paul and James agree a lot. See, one, one of the things that we have going, it, you know, it takes just less than one hour to read the entire book of Romans. Just less than one hour. Now, if you went to public school, it might take a little longer. But, but it, it, should, it should take you ju just a little bit less than, than I, I went to public school too. Uh, it, it, it should take you just less than an hour to read the book of Romans. So our issues, some of our issues with not aligning our ideas with our behavior or aligning our faith with our actions may be related to the fact that we take passages of the Bible 
And we study passages of the Bible. And that's very, very good. That's a good practice. We should study passages of the Bible. But when Paul sat down and wrote this, he sent it to a local church. And, and, and every indication is that that local church sat down with these, this letter and they read the letter from beginning to end. They, in, in one sitting, they, they read the 16 chapters that we know of as, as the book of Romans. And so as they sat there, they heard him make all of his case in chapters 1 through 8. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11, really he turns his attention to Israel. But it's not that much different. He's saying, look at God's faithfulness to you, Israel. And then when it comes to chapter 12, he says, look, in light of all of that mercy, here's how you should live. And so the, the Romans who first read this letter, they sat here and they read it all together. And so as, as they heard the case being made in the first 11 chapters, the application came immediately. And sometimes we can just uh, spend time in a single passage, almost like staring at a single tree and not seeing the whole forest. And so as we walk through this, this series and now bring this series to a close, I don't want us to miss this. We need better alignment between our truth and action, between ideas and behavior, between faith and works. James and Paul get along a lot better than some people think. And you know what Paul really does here in these last four or five chapters what you could say the summary of all the action is. So he, he lays out a lot of actions, and you can read it in those four or five chapters. But the summary is love. Th th that's, that's the summary of all of the action, all of the application of chapters 1 through 11. What, what does it show up like? All of that vertical, what does it show up horizontally? Well, the primary reality of what's happening vertically is, is God's love for us in Christ. And so the primary demonstration of it out there, while the actions are varied, the motivation is love. That, that's, that's the summary of all of the action. And boy, we get this summary a few different times in the Bible, don't we? Where the question is, what's the greatest commandment? To love God and to love your neighbor. That shows up in the Old Testament. That shows up in the New Testament. They're time and time again from different voices and different people to love God and to love people. And you can trace it right through Romans 12 through 16. And you can see multiple times where this kind of language shows up, where love is seen as the ultimate display. For our scripture reading, Romans 12, uh, yeah, Romans 12, 9 and 10 were read. And this, I'm just going to touch on this. But it says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that this idea of loving someone with brotherly love who wasn't in your family was, was a new idea. And Paul came and associated this with anyone who is in Christ. That, that was his primary point, was if someone else is in Christ, you should love them like a brother, like a sister. That's the kind of love you should have for them. As Paul unpacks this in Romans 12 through 16, he, he extends it out. And he says, yeah, absolutely you start with the family of God. Absolutely you start with the household of God. But it doesn't stop there. It's your posture towards your neighbor. It's your posture towards the people in your community, towards the people who you work with, uh, toward, uh, towards any human being. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about uh, uh, what we know as the Good Samaritan. And the whole parable, which is this super powerful parable, uh, parable um, the whole parable is given in response to 
somebody trying to catch Jesus in a trap by saying, well, who really is my neighbor? And Jesus' point is, everybody's your neighbor. And so this, this love that God has poured out on us translates into a love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, absolutely, but also to a love for people, love for, for, for others, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. But let's focus on Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. So if you have your Bible, you can turn over a couple pages and get to Romans chapter 13. Um, but these verses read, Owe no one anything. So he's just gotten done talking about taxes and, and, and financial things. But he says, Owe nobody anything except the debt of love or to, to, to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Part of what Paul's saying here is that love is actually owed to other people. That you have a love debt to other people. He's writing to Christians here. And so what's his point? If you've received that kind of vertical love, then, then you, you have this, this responsibility for that love to pour out of you to other people. The way we are to love is also a little bit of a shocker. Do you notice what he says? He says the, the way that we are to love others is by actually obeying God's law. So what does it look like to love your neighbor? Paul says... It's actually to live a life of obedience to God's law. In verse 8, the second half, it says, If you love others, you have fulfilled the law. Look, look at verse 9. Because the law, commandments, you know, do not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, they are summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God's law is the map for loving people. Now, in, in our culture, man, we kind of get sideways with this a little bit, don't we? In our culture, we, we kind of have this sense of saying, well, I don't know. You know, uh, look at verse 10. You know, verse 10 says, do no one any wrong, and that lo love does no wrong. Don't you know how uncomfortable God's law is for other people? Don't you know how hurtful it is when you hold up God's standards? Well, it's true. The, the Bible does step on our toes, but... What if God actually designed us? What, what if God actually made humans? If that's true, then he actually knows what we need and what is for our good. One commentator put it this way. Paul defines love as scrupulously obeying God's law in one's relationship with their neighbor. So love is really just following the law. You see, Paul refuses to pit love and law against each other. Paul's saying that the obedient thing is the loving thing, and the loving thing is the obedient thing. That he's saying, how do you interact with your neighbor? You interact with your neighbor by actually aligning your life with God's good design. And every time we reject God's good way, we do it at great cost to ourselves and at great cost to our neighbor. I mean, a really easy example. We, we should not murder. It says no, don't murder. And you could say, well, one reason to not murder is you don't want to go to jail. Well, that's, that's true. 
that you, don't, you probably don't want to go to jail, so it would be a good idea not to murder. But are, is there another reason? Isn't there another reason? Isn't the dignity of the other person a compelling reason to not murder? The Bible says not to commit adultery. And, and yes, there, there could be personal consequences for that. It could, it could wreck the, the, the harmony of your marriage. But aren't there other reasons to not commit adultery? Like your spouse? Like the dignity of the person that you would commit adultery with? You, you see, Paul, Paul is pointing to these things and he's saying there's a way in which when we align ourselves with God's good design, we actually honor other people. We actually love our neighbor. Now, I, I don't really want to get off on this rabbit trail, but one of our problems is that we, uh, we, you know, we associate our law with God's law. We associate our preferences with God's standards. So look, if you don't drink alcohol or you don't want to drink alcohol, don't. But to impress that upon someone else when the scriptures don't do it, that's not loving your neighbor. If, if you don't like tattoos, don't get one. But if you tell someone else that they shouldn't get a tattoo, that, that, that's not God's standard. And in the list, you know, you could make the list really, really long here. And so be careful that you're not associating your preferences with God's law. But when you've actually taken the time to understand what God's design for this life is, when you actually see God's standards for what they are, God's good way, then you begin to realize that these are not arbitrary hoops to jump through. God did not give us his law to see who's really committed. It's a loving gift He's saying, this is how you were made. This is what you were meant for. And as you live this out, this is your design. This is, what, this is what you were designed for. Brothers and sisters, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. You know, the loving your neighbor is literally a non-negotiable. Go do it. Go love them. Figure out how to love your next door neighbor. Do it in an honorable way. Don't steal from them. Don't lie about them. Don't misrepresent them. But go, go love your neighbor. There's plenty of people in this church building for you to love. The lambs and the whipples. Kathy Hackelman. We had, we had Ron's uh, graveside memorial yesterday. There are marriages that are struggling. Some have gone through the journey of divorce. There are illnesses. There's loneliness. There are plenty of opportunities for you to go love your neighbor. And as you commit yourself and align yourself with God's good design, you will find yourself blessing them beyond what you could have guessed. This is how God's designed the world to work. And listen, guilt is not going to get you there. Guilt will never work here. You know that like basically every world religion says like, go, go love people, go help the poor. But a lot of times it's, it's built in, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's motivated by, by guilt. There's a secular way in which we should help the poor. We should go love our neighbor. But a lot of that is, is rooted in, in guilt. It's like, you have so much. Your life is going good. You should go turn outward. You should go, you should go give some of that away. The, the Christian motivation is not guilt. The Christian motivation is abundance. The Christian motivation is, look at what's been done to me. I get to share that now. This is, this is an overflow of what, be, what has been poured out into my life. Guilt will never get you there. 
Guilt will always make you ask the question of how much is enough? How, how often should I love my neighbor? How much money should I give to the poor? How much service should I do? That's, guilt's going to get you asking those kind of questions. And if you find yourself asking those kind of questions, uh, my bet is that you're motivated by guilt. Instead, there's a freedom here. There, there's a freedom and a recognition that what Christ has done in your life, that the love of God found in Christ is so grand and so good that God says it should be flowing out of us. If you aren't growing in your love for others, then maybe you've missed something from Romans 1 through 8. Maybe you actually misunderstand something about your relationship with God. Are you rude and angry? Are you judgmental and isolated? Are you gripped by fear and anxiety? Man, if those things are true of you, would you be willing to consider whether or not you've missed something essential about the way that God has been at work in you through Christ? You know, about 500 years ago, Martin Luther said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. You see, you're not doing these things to earn God's favor. Romans 1 through 8 puts that to bed. Romans 1 through 8 crystal clear tells you that God loves you just because he loves you. That he's the initiator, that before you were alive, he was working on this. And if that's true, then we're not doing our good works to get God to be happy with us. He already is. You already have the smile of the Father. And so these good works are an overflow of that. And you can actually love people for their sake, not for your sake. You, you can go love them not to do your good deed for the day, not to make sure that God's happy with you, but you can just go love them for their sake. Our source, our confidence, our fuel for loving other people like this is that Christ has loved us. Romans 15, 7, which Ben mentioned just a few minutes ago, as Christ has welcomed you, go welcome others. Th this is the reality. It's not guilt-driven. It's, it's, it's an invitation. You've been welcomed. Welcome other people. Romans 5, 8, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. It was a gift. And then maybe you're familiar with 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that tells us that we love him because he first loved us. You see the order of these things? Romans 1 through 8 says that God has poured his love out on us in Christ. Romans 12 through 16 says, here's what that looks like. If that's filled your heart, let me tell you something. It's not just going to fill your heart. It's going to overflow your heart. And you're going to love other people. Well, maybe you could say uh, the question why all this uh, was going through my mind. And if you go back to the very beginning of Romans chapter 8, uh, not the very beginning, but verses 3 and 4. This is what Paul says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, everybody needs to be made right, but nobody can make themselves right. Only Christ can make you right. Faith in Christ will make you right. That's why God sent his son, so that we could be made right. And then the law might be fulfilled through us, that we actually live this out to our brothers and sisters in this church family, that we live it out to every neighbor and coworker and friend, that this is on display in the world. And we have an incredible opportunity. I, I heard a pastor, Scott Saul, say, you know, guys, 
you know how low the bar is set right now? Over the last 18 months, it's like, if you could just figure out how to be kind, you're going to be unique. The bar is set really low. Maybe we could just go, go for it. Maybe it should be flowing out of us a little bit more than it is. We have an opportunity to demonstrate kindness, not getting our underwear in a bunch about every little thing that happens, not protesting and picketing on every subject, actually figuring out how to listen to our neighbors, to love them, and to actually come alongside them and hear their story and to recognize that this life throws a lot of curveballs at people. And what they need are people who actually have aligned their life with God's good way. And they're living, in in a sense, this this righteous life. Yes, moral, but also intensely relational. Where in right standing with God, we are invited into right relationship with others. The love of God poured out in Christ was to make us right with God. And then that rightness would overflow to the people around us. This is the love and life that Jesus offers. It is available to you. And it is so, so good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, Romans 8 and the 39 verses of, of Romans 8. We thank you for the chapters that precede it and those, those three chapters after it that just uh, so loudly declare your love for people. The, the, the activity that you, have, that you have undertaken, the actions that you have done, the work that you have done in order to be able to make us right, to to be able to bring our hearts to life, to actually restore our relationship with you. And then God, help us not to miss Romans 12 through 16, that there's there's an outflow here, that there's a, 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 a result, a byproduct, fruit that comes from this. And God, if that fruit is missing in us, would you, would you help us to be willing to ask the questions of our own hearts, of our own understanding of the gospel? Do we recognize how scandalously free this gift is? How good this news is? And then God, would you give us hands and feet that are on the move for the good of each other, for the good of the world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.